You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So pleased that you could join me today on our live question and answer uh, broadcast here on Thursday afternoons, as often as I'm able to, we get together and we take questions from whatever comes in on the live chat, and I respond the best I can. I certainly don't pretend to have the answer to every question, but I do what we can. So uh, this is a wonderful time for us to get together. We always begin with a lead question. The lead question will sometimes come in as a comment on the YouTube channel. Sometimes it'll come in uh, through social media or email or something. And so this particular question today comes in from Heather. And if I could summarize Heather's question, it is simply this, do we have to kneel when we pray? Here's what Heather asks. She says, although I have devoted time with God each day where I pray on my knees to him, I also speak with God constantly throughout the day. Am I dishonoring God by being too casual with my posture? Should I always be on my knees when I speak to the Lord to ensure that I am honoring him fully? Well, Heather, that's a great question, and I'm glad that you've asked it. It really enables us to get down to something right here that will simply get to the thing, do we have to kneel when we pray? And what I like about this question is that it deals with the subject of prayer itself, and really not just with the practice of kneeling in prayer. So let me give you a quick answer to that question. It is good to kneel in prayer, but normally speaking, it is not necessary to kneel in prayer. Let's talk first about the goodness of kneeling in prayer. You see, this can be seen in many people in the Bible who are specifically mentioned as kneeling in prayer. Ezra prayed on his knees. That's in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5. The psalmist called us to kneel in prayer. That's Psalm 95, verse 6. Daniel prayed on his knees. That's Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. People came to Jesus in a kneeling posture, or rather they kneeled when they came to him, I should say. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 1. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he prayed on his knees. That's Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Peter, the apostle, important leader in the early church, he prayed on his knees. Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Paul prayed on his knees, Acts chapter 20, verse 36, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and other early Christians prayed on their knees. Acts chapter 21, verse 5, tells us of the Ephesian elders when they got together with the Apostle Paul. Before they parted, they all knelt together and prayed. So we see the practice of prayer on the knees in the Old Testament and the New Testament But perhaps most importantly, for our purposes, Jesus prayed on his knee. Specific mention of this is found in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, where it talks about Jesus kneeling to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, the Bible has enough kneeling prayer to show us that it is a good thing to get down on our knees when we pray. And I just want to say, is this something that you do? Is it something that you do enough? I have to say that I'm kind of in there with that aspect of the question. I certainly pray on my knees. Do I do it enough? I don't think that I do. It's a good thing. We have many patterns, pictures. We have a lot of premise to pray on our knees. However, we also must say that the Bible has enough prayer not on the knees to show us that kneeling in prayer is not required. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, Jesus didn't say anything about a physical posture. Isn't that interesting? The disciples saw Jesus pray all the time, and when they came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, 
Jesus walked them through something that we often call uh, the Lord's Prayer. It might be better termed the, the disciples' prayer because it's really how the disciples, how followers of Jesus Christ should pray. And, and it's that, that famous prayer, Our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name. But in that whole explanation of Jesus on how they should pray, he didn't say anything about praying on their knees. When Jesus talks about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount and talks about the right way and the wrong way to pray, he doesn't say anything about praying on the knees. Matter of fact, the physical postures of prayer are often more cultural than they are biblical or spiritual. In the Western world, the main custom, I don't mean that everybody does this, but if we have a custom in prayer, it's something like this. We fold our hands, we close our eyes, and we bow our heads. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that custom. Matter of fact, I think that the folding of hands in prayer is pretty good because if you fold your hands in prayer, then at least for a few minutes, you're getting your phone out of your hands. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Just anything that'll take your phone out of your hands for a few minutes, especially as you pray, that's not a bad thing. The Jewish custom of prayer in Bible times was for them to stand, to raise their hands, and often to open their eyes, to lift up their eyes to heaven as they prayed. And the standing was meant to show reverence to God, honoring him, and to show activity. To raise the hands was a gesture both of reaching out to God and surrendering to him. And that's why we find many references in the Bible to raising one's hands in either prayer or praise. And then they would often have their eyes opened, the ancient Jews would, when they prayed. So that was the Jewish custom of prayer. So you, you can argue that there's good things or better things about particular customs, about particular times, but, but a physical posture of prayer is not commanded in the Bible. Now, I would say this. Our physical posture in prayer matters but I would say it matters first and foremost as a practical thing. If you're sleepy, don't pray laying down. I don't know how many of us have been in that place. We, we fall asleep as we're praying, and that can happen under anybody if they're very tired. But if you're sleepy and you know it's time to pray, don't pray laying down. It's not smart. It's not smart practically, but the practical thing has a spiritual connotation or effect. If you're driving a car, please don't pray with your eyes closed. It's okay to pray with your eyes open then. So I'm not trying to say that the physical posture of prayer has no importance. It does have some importance, but the physical posture of prayer is not of greatest importance. So kneeling is good. Kneeling before God shows surrender, submission, honor, and reverence. If those things are in the heart, it's good to express them in the body. If those things are not in the heart of the one who prays, it doesn't matter the position of the body. If your heart is utterly unsurrendered to God, it doesn't do any good for you to kneel before him. Now, let's recognize this. Sometimes the position of the body can help bring the heart into the right place. <laughs> Sometimes kneeling for prayer helps me to remind myself and put myself in a condition of heart that is more surrendered, is more submitted, is more honoring to God. So there can be a connection between my physical posture and my heart. We're not trying to say they're always separated. And in and of itself, kneeling in prayer can be a beautiful expression of surrender and honor and reverence to God, or it can be an empty ritual. It can be something even worse, done to impress other people. If I'm praying uh, in front of other people or in the company of other people, might be a better way to say it, and I kneel with the thought 
Oh, they'll see how spiritual I am when I kneel. Brothers and sisters, that's a bad thing. We shouldn't pray in such a way to impress others. So I would put it like this. The position of your body is important in prayer, but the position of your heart is even more important. I can put it to you this way. God doesn't look at the eloquence of your prayers to see how poetic they are. God doesn't look at the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are. God doesn't look at the arithmetic of your prayers to see how many they are. God doesn't look at the music of your prayers. He doesn't look at the sweetness of your voice. He doesn't look at the logic of your prayers. Fundamentally, God looks at the faith and the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are before him. If you feel that prayer isn't real prayer, if you aren't kneeling, then something is wrong. I guess what I'm trying to say is if you feel that you have to kneel when you pray, I think something's wrong. But I'll say this. If you never pray on your knees, I would also say that something is wrong. Most of us, most people I know, we could do with some more kneeling prayer. As for this dear sister Heather, who asked a question, Heather, don't feel bad when you pray and you're not in a kneeling posture. It's good that you do it when you can, but don't feel that prayer is not honoring to God, that it is not displaying proper reverence to God or submission to him if you are not praying from your knees. All right, well, I hope that that answer to that question is helpful for somebody. Let me look now at our side chat and take a look at some of what we have here. Um, Going back up to the top, Ryan asks, does God want me to have physical peace? Uh, Ryan, I have to say, I don't know exactly what you mean by physical peace. I think that perhaps what you mean by that is peace that can be felt. In other words, does God want me to have a conscious feeling of peace? And my answer to that question would be, uh, in the most part, he does. Now, I don't think it's necessarily sin if for a time you don't feel a a physical or a tangible sense of peace. Um, If you just got in a traffic accident and the adrenaline is pumping through your body and you've got to work out injuries and you got to work out uh, legal matters and you got to work out practical matters with your car and all the rest are together. You, you may not have peace right there in that moment. And if you don't, I wouldn't be too worried about it. But I think God wants us in general to operate from a place of peace. And if I could take it a step further, not just peace, but what the Bible calls perfect peace. You shall keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Now, that phrase in the Hebrew, perfect peace, really actually what it is, is it's a repetition of the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And when the Bible repeats a word like that, especially in the Hebrew text, what it's doing is it's intensifying it. So, To have peace is one thing. To have peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. That is a higher level of peace, what the Bible, and what I think is rightly uh, translated as perfect peace. In the most part, in the main, God wants us to have this sense of peace in our life. That no matter what's going on around us, we have perfect peace in him, not in our circumstances, not even fundamentally in our feelings, but our perfect peace is in him. So I hope I understood your question right there, Ryan. Let me look now to the next question. JS says, good evening, Pastor David from London. So delighted that we can have our uh, European or international viewers. That's one of the reasons why I like doing our weekly question and answer time here at 12 noon Pacific. 
I know that perhaps we might get more people on the West Coast of the United States or more U.S. listeners if we did it later in the day, but uh, I, I like doing it at noon now and making it nice and open for so many friends and brothers and sisters in Europe, in Africa, and uh, other places in the world. Uh, Daniel also says, good evening. Lucho says, was John the Baptist the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament? Thanks in advance. Okay, Lucho, (laughs) I'll give you a classical theological answer to that question. Was John the Baptist Elijah from the Old Testament? Here's how I'll answer that question. Yes and no. It's a classic theological evasion. Let me give you the no part of it. John the Baptist was not Elijah resurrected. He was certainly not Elijah reincarnated because we don't believe in reincarnation. That's not a Bible idea at all. He was not Elijah back from heaven. I wouldn't say back from the dead because the Bible tells us that Elijah is one of those few individuals. Enoch is another one who went to heaven without passing through death first. So, uh, John the Baptist was not Elijah come back to earth. That's the no part of the answer. Here's the yes part of the answer. John the Baptist very much did fulfill the role of Elijah. The role of Elijah in the way that he dressed, in the way that he ministered, in the way that he was fearless in his bold proclamation and confrontation of evil. He ministered what you might call in the spirit and in the office of Elijah. In that sense, he was. So, he was not literally Elijah back from heaven, but neither uh, is it right to say that he had no connection with Elijah. He ministered, as Jesus said, in the spirit, in the office of Elijah. He fulfilled Elijah's role if Elijah would have been on the earth at that time. So I hope that helps you there, uh, Lucho. Um, Mictalia, I guess, says, good evening from Stuttgart. Wonderful. So glad to see you. Thomas says, very glad to be with you from Switzerland. I love it that we have so many European viewers. JS says... Do we have to prayerfully wear the whole armor of God daily? Well, J.S., I would certainly say it's not bad. And and you see, simply, the the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 is given to us as our protection and our equipping for living in a world where spiritual warfare is active all around us. And so, in that Ephesians 6 passage, Paul talks about the armor of God in many different aspects. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the uh, belt of truth, the sandals of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit. He lists all these different aspects of spiritual truth that we must have and take with us as the armor of God. Now, living in the trusting reality of those things is better than just having some kind of prayer ceremony where you say, I take on the breastplate of righteousness. I take on the belt of truth. Look, look, having a prayer like that every day is fine, but, but it has to be real in faith. You actually have to say and believe, I am protected by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just as a breastplate would cover my chest. When we believe and walk in that, then we are truly putting on the armor of God. If it helps someone to sort of do it as a custom every day, Now I put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now I put on the belt of truth. As long as they do that as a conscious faith reaching out to God and not just an empty ritual, well then great, it should be done. I'll tell you this, we need the armor of God every day. 
Every day we need the helmet of salvation upon our head. Every day we need the breastplate of righteousness and every other aspect of the armor of God that the Apostle Paul mentions in the Ephesians chapter 6 passage. If you go to my website, EnduringWord.com, you can find an audio series. It's not in video. It's only available in audio. But you can find an audio series where I teach through that whole Ephesians chapter 6 armor of God passage. I think it might be a benefit to you. So again, uh, that's at my website, EnduringWord.com. And you can find that in the available audio resources. If you go to the website, you can find it under the media menu. Hope that helps you there. Uh, Thomas says, the state here ordered us to stay sitting during the services. Should we obey? Well, Thomas, um, I would be okay with agreeing with a, uh, a statement from the government saying that you should sit during a worship service. Now, I need to explain this. It's very important for us to realize this principle, that the government is not the Lord, so to speak, over the church. Jesus Christ is the Lord over the church. Therefore, we don't look to government for the permission to meet. We don't look to the government to tell us how we should meet, how often we should meet. The government doesn't have the right to tell us these things. Now, having said that, the government does have a role in public health, public safety. And if the government tells the people, uh, you Christians, if you're going to meet together for church, you should remain seated throughout the service. I would be willing to accept that for a time, but it wouldn't work like this in my heart, in my mind. Well, the government tells me to do it. I'll do it. No, it would work like this. The government suggests this to me. Now, they may not feel, the government may not feel like it's suggesting. The government may feel that it's commanding. Whatever. I'm taking it as a suggestion. The government suggests to me that we should not stand during our, during our worship services and looking at the thing. I don't regard that as a overstepping of a line from the government. Uh, maybe it would be wise for us to do that for a few weeks. Okay, great. We're going to sit through our worship services. We won't stand for prayer. We won't stand for worship, even though normally we would. Okay, I, I can agree with that. But again, based on the principle, not because the government says it's best and commands me, but because the government has informed me of this, I've thought about it, I've looked in my Bible about it, I've prayed about it, and I'm okay with agreeing with the government on this particular point. That is how I would process this. Now, the other aspect that I think is very important in this is that there is no biblical command that we must observe a certain posture in our worship services. There is not a biblical command that says you must stand, you must kneel, you must sit. There are examples of standing, sitting, and kneeling in worship throughout the scriptures. And I could make a case biblically for any one of these postures. But there is no command, either or pattern or in specific thing, that tells us this is how we must arrange our bodies, so to speak, in the worship services. So putting all that together, that's the kind of thing that I would be okay with. And I'm just speaking for myself. I would be okay with, with something like that for at least a period of time. I guess that's the best way I would answer that, Thomas. So, wonderful. Okay, let me go on here to the next question from... Uh, Mikitalia says, when God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree, you will die. How could they know what death is? 
Would they have eaten if they did know? Well, uh, Mikatalia, I, I think you're on to something here. I don't think that there's any way that Adam and Eve could have known the full effects of what their sin would be. Now, God told them, at least in, in Maine, what the effects of their sin would be. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die, God said. But I don't think they could have understood in the fullness of how it worked out what the full effects of their sin is. But I would suggest this to you. Is that not the case with all of our sin? Every time we sin, it is rare when we sin with a complete understanding of what the effects of that sin will be. It is often the case that we sin, and if we would have known in fullness all the trouble it would get us in, we wouldn't have done it. So maybe, but that's just sort of the nature of temptation. Temptation blinds itself. And, and you know, we just can get theoretical, hypothetical with this, but hypothetically, could, could not have Adam and Eve asked God for a greater description? God, you say, in the day that I eat of this, I will die. And I understand, Lord, that death is bad. I get that. But I understand exactly what you mean. Could not they have asked God? In other words, even when we sin and we don't know the full effects of our sin, I think that if we would carefully think about it, and especially if we would ask the Lord, he might inform us in a way that would help us to walk in a more obedient way before him. All right, let me continue on here. Uh, Jose says, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul, or is Paul talking about the rapture? If so, uh, will the great falling away and the Antichrist happen before the rapture? Thanks. All right, let me look at that passage just so I can read it, and we can talk about it here together. We're talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter. I know 1 Thessalonians is clearly speaking about the rapture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, here starting at verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if... From us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. Okay, I'll stop there in the middle of verse 4. Jose, what you're really asking is a question that's fairly common. There are people who teach that the falling away mentioned in verse 3 is actually the catching away of the church that is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, in those verses. What is it? Verses 16 and 17. I have to say, say, I do not believe that the falling away here is a reference to the rapture. Now, how would anybody connect falling away with the catching away of the church? Well, because literally, that term falling away in the original language has the sense of a departure. That, that's simply what it is. It's a departure. And you could say that the catching away of the church, as is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that is a departure. So some people say, well, it can mean departure. Maybe this is talking about the catching away of the church. Okay, I, I want you to know, it's true that that word can mean departure. And it could have reference to the uh, catching away of the church, but I don't think so. That's not the most plain meaning. We have to be careful when we're studying uh, the Bible, and let's just talk about the New Testament that when we find a word that has a range of meanings, and by the way, in most languages, 
Many words have a range of meanings. There's not just one word that defines or encompasses all the sense of a word. So we have to be careful that when a word has a range of meanings, that we just don't pick the meaning we like or the meaning that fits our argument the best and say, that's it. No, you have to look carefully to the context and see which meaning best fits the context. And in my mind, the context here suggests that the best way to understand the falling away is of truly an apostasy, a falling away, a falling away of society as a whole or of falling away of those who claim to be Christians from the faith altogether. So I, I don't believe that it's speaking there of that falling away. Now, your question is, if so, will the great falling away and the Antichrist, will it happen before the rapture? Um, I do not believe that the Antichrist will be fully revealed before the church is caught up. And I also do not believe that this great falling away will be fulfilled before. Now, are people falling away today? Yes. Is there some indication that more people are falling away today than before? Perhaps. I don't know how we say that with certainty. But I just simply would say this. I believe that the great falling away happens uh, during this last seven-year period that the Bible describes for us in some detail. So, Jose, that's how I see it. I hope that answer is helpful for you. Uh, Dave has this question. He said, David, your thoughts on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your masters. My idea is that God understands fallen man will always engage in slavery, sometimes in different degrees and forms. Well, Dave, uh, there's something to that. Uh, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation regarding slavery and the Bible. I think some of this is accidental. I'm afraid that some of it is deliberate, a deliberate distortion of what the Bible says about slavery and what slavery was in the ancient world. All right, I'm going to say something. I think it's probably pretty heavy, but I'll say this. The ancient world was better for having the practice of slavery than for not having the practice of slavery. Now, I'm saying that about the ancient world. The ancient world was better for having the practice of slavery than for not having the practice of slavery. Now, I know that that's in the minds of some people an outrageous statement. So let me explain. And when you hear my explanation, then you can respond. Or if you want to carry on a conversation about this at a later time, I'm, I'm interested in this. The major way that slaves came into the ancient world was as prisoners of war. And there were really two choices. When you conquered an army, conquered a city, either you killed them or you made them a slave. In that situation, when the choice is mass slaughter or slavery, the better choice is slavery. That's in that respect. The other respect is in terms of poverty. The second most common way that people became slaves in the ancient world was because they were so poor that if they did not sell themselves and perhaps their family into servitude to another person, they would die from starvation. So it wasn't a choice between a nice middle-class job at a factory or slavery. That wasn't the choice. The choice was death by starvation, death by war or slavery. In that context, the main context of the ancient world, the world was better. The ancient world, the biblical days, world, the ancient world was better 
having the practice of slavery than not having it. There would have been more death and destruction in the ancient world without slavery than with it. Now, thankfully, we really do live in a remarkably different age, and we should recognize that. There are um, both in terms of civilization and in terms of economics, a different situation in the world today. I do not say for a moment that in a more modern world, the world would be better for slavery. No, but we don't live in that world. We have to consider what the world was like in ancient times, in Bible times. Therefore, the Bible does not eliminate the practice of slavery in its own day. It regulates it. And we also have to realize that the Bible sowed the seeds for the abolition of slavery. Something that drives me crazy is when people talk or think as if Christianity or the Bible is responsible for slavery. I say this with all kindness. That's crazy talk. Slavery is a universal among mankind. The question is not, why is there slavery? The question is, why is slavery eliminated in many or most parts of the world? And the answer to that question is Christianity. It really is. It is not other major religions that played the role of the abolition of slavery. So when people act as if the Bible or Christianity is the answer to the question, why is there slavery, drives me crazy. It, it, it really is um, somebody who's just not thinking clearly. But Christianity and the Bible is truly the answer to the question, why has slavery been abolished in most of the world? So uh, that's really how it. Now, one more thing to say. I talked about the two main ways that slavery was established or the reasons for slavery in the ancient world. Prisoners of war and poverty so bad that if they were not sold into slavery, they would die of starvation. In those cases, slavery was better than death. However, the practice of kidnapping people for slavery, as was the African slave trade built upon. The idea of kidnapping people and enslaving them is directly against the Bible, and it is given the severest penalty under the Mosaic law. They called it man-stealing, and it is specifically forbidden in the Bible. It was kidnapping. That kind of slavery is not even conceived as being valid from a biblical perspective. The only kinds of slavery that were in, in that context came from these situations where it would be actually preferred to death. So, uh, Dave, I hope that answers your question. I do know that that is sort of a controversial topic, but I do believe we need biblical clarity on these matters. Uh, ben brings his question and says, when I talk to former believers, I noticed a lot of people cannot accurately explain the gospel. What is the best way to show them the true gospel? Well, Ben, I, I think that that's true. I think there's a lot of confusion. We, we don't blame people who don't yet believe for not understanding the gospel. I mean, of course they don't. It is very sad that so many people who do believe don't really understand the gospel. And what is the best way to show them the true gospel? Well, first, you've got to understand it yourself. And I would say that the essence of the gospel is found in a couple things. First of all, the gospel is not found in anything that we do for God, the gospel is the announcement 
of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, especially in his death, burial, and resurrection, as is described in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to recommend to you a video. I'm pretty sure it's on the YouTube channel. Uh, We'll put the link to it in our uh, description. Look for the video uh, of a message that I did entitled, When the Gospel Comes in Power. And in that, I try to give the best definition and understanding of the gospel that I can. But to, to bring it down to this, the gospel is not anything that we do. It is the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if someone's Christian life or experience is focused on what they have done for God, what they are doing for God, or what they promise to do for God, they don't really understand the gospel. It's really the message of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, especially in his death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, I'll give one other idea here, Ben. Many times, and I find this very common today, people confuse the effects of the gospel with the gospel itself. I'll give you a good example. Racial reconciliation is not the gospel. It is an effect of the gospel. I believe that when the gospel is at work, when God is saving and transforming people, they will love one another. They will put away racism. That'll just be gone. However, racial reconciliation is not the gospel. Racial reconciliation is something that we do, or at least is done in us. No, it is an effect of the gospel. So I think we need to make a clear distinction in our mind, a difference between what the gospel, the gospel is a message. It's a message of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and fundamentally in his death, burial, and resurrection. I think that's the third or fourth time I've said that, but it's so important to me to explain that to you. That's that. Then there are the effects of the gospel. Now, the effects of the gospel are important. I don't think that we, sh- we should avoid talking about the effects of the gospel and explaining them and teaching them and, and, and really exhorting the people of God to walk in those effects of the gospel. But we just understand there's a difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Okay, to make that distinction. All right, going on to the next question. West says, hello, Pastor David. How do you tell the difference between false prophet and teacher and true prophet or teacher? Well, really, there's just one way. uh, And that one way is by the word of God. We take a look at what God has given us in this book, uh, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And if somebody does not teach according to this, um, they are not teaching the truth. Now, what you're talking about, though, West, has something to do with how words are understood. I believe, I'm going to use an example here. I believe in believer's baptism. I do not believe in infant baptism. And I I could talk for a long time about that, and maybe we will sometime on the YouTube channel. I believe in believer's baptism and not infant baptism. And I believe that people who try to teach infant baptism from the scriptures, I believe that they're wrong. I believe that they are teaching wrong incorrectly from the scriptures, but I would not call them false teachers. Not because it isn't technically true. Look, technically speaking, anybody who teaches something false is a false teacher. But that's not how the term is understood. I would therefore reserve the term false teacher, false prophet, 
for those who are wrong about serious things. Um, <laughs> I'll give an example. Uh, if, if I were to tell you, you know, I think it's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's going to rain. Uh, and by the way, it's not going to rain here in California. We haven't had rain for a long time. But if I were to say to you, I think it's going to rain. No, I know it's going to rain tomorrow. And it does not rain. I think it would be overboard for you to consider me for the rest of my days a false prophet and you would never listen to anything I say. Now, technically speaking, did I make a false prophecy? Yes, I suppose I did. But there isn't just the technical understanding of the term. It's how it's understood. Therefore, certainly a false prophet makes predictions that aren't true. A false teacher teaches things that are not true. But there really does have to be a measure of proportion and a measure of understanding in how we use these terms. Or we need to spend a long time explaining ourselves when we use them. So I hope that's helpful for you there, West. Um, West asks another question here. Also, if a leader talks down about another leader, does that mean he's false? Well, no, not necessarily. Um, if a leader talks about another leader and they don't tell the truth about that leader, then they're being false. But it is not false teaching to bring valid analysis and criticism against someone who's a public teacher. It, it just has to be done truthfully. And I have to say, as I look out on the world of apologetics on um, YouTube, on other places, I think that there is a lot of bad apologetics on YouTube. Bad in this sense that they're not fair. They don't carefully and accurately assess and judge the situations. They tend to judge more based on sound bites than real research. They, they tend to judge more on gotcha um, phrases or words that people use instead of truly digging into what those people say and think. They also tend to ignore evidence to the contrary, which is very important if you're going to judge somebody fairly. Because sometimes people are wrong, sometimes people are right, and sometimes people are contradictory. They say one thing, and then they say something else that contradicts it, but you can't just act as if the only thing they said is the one thing first. You have to acknowledge that it's complicated and contradicting. So because I think that there's a lot of bad apologetics uh, out on podcasts and YouTube, I, I enjoy recommending good apologetics. And I'll just give you two good apologists that I find on YouTube. Uh, Mike Winger, you can just search for his name on YouTube. Um, wonderful, wonderful apologist. I, I think he does a great job. And one of the things that impresses about me is he is fair. Another person I think who is very fair in their uh, approach apologetically is a woman named Elisa Childers. Uh, her podcast, her YouTube work, again, um, fair. N not afraid to confront things, but committed to doing it in a fair manner. All right, let me see if I can go on here. Uh, we got about 10 minutes left. Uh, Sydney asks, what is the significance of the book of Ruth? Oh, well, Sydney, that's a great question. I can give you many, many different aspects of the significance of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is significant because it shows us what life was like in the days of the judges. It's a little vignette from the uh, days of the judges. The book of Ruth is important because it shows us how the line of David got from the tribe of Judah down to 
Jesse, the father of David. It's important for how it reveals the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth is important because it shows us God's love for and God's work in people from the nations surrounding Israel. One of the most important things to understand about the book of Ruth is that the main character in the book, Ruth, is a Moabitess. She's not an Israeli, not by birth. She uh, comes under the God of Israel. She comes to become devoted to the God of Israel, but by birth, she was not. And it shows us God's love for and plan for the nations. That's a very significant theme in the book of Ruth. And if I could add one more thing, not that these are the only things, but the book of Ruth is significant because it is such a beautiful story. When I was in college, I had a teacher of literature class, and this guy wasn't a believer by any means. He called the book of Ruth one of the best short stories in existence. And I would agree with him. It is just a great story. And it shows us how God works in wonderful ways to protect, to provide, to bless uh, his people and those who want to become his people. So those are some of the things I uh, come up with when I think of the significance of the book of Ruth. Uh, going on here now, a question from Gracia says, have you come across the interesting explanations for the Levitical priests in Jeremiah 33:18? Well, I don't know. Uh, I have a commentary on Jeremiah, the entire book of Jeremiah, which, by the way, I hope that in a month or two will be in print. Uh, but right now you can get it for free on uh, EnduringWord.com. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 18 says, Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Well, here this comes at the end of new covenant promises. And really, I mean, properly, I should look up my commentary right here on Jeremiah chapter 33. But I'm going to suppose that this has reference to what I would call the completion of the new covenant. Listen, I'm big on covenant theology. I'm just not big on the reformed version of covenant theology. But I believe that the covenants of God have a very important role in understanding his unfolding plan of the ages. Just as, as uh, the reformed would teach in their understanding of covenant theology, I do not believe in an unnamed uh, overarching covenant of works and covenant of grace. But what I do believe is that God did, this isn't the only thing I believe about God's work in and through the covenants, but I do believe that God has done a remarkable work in and through the new covenant. Now, what many people don't understand about the new covenant, if you go to the new covenant passages, such as Jeremiah 33, and, and what I'm reading to you here is part of those promises, and Ezekiel chapter 36, and a few other places in the Old Testament, these Old Testament promises regarding the new covenant. One of the important features of the new covenant is the restoration of Israel, including their restoration to the land, including their ultimate coming to faith under the Messiah. Now, since I believe that that is part of the new covenant in totality, though I definitely believe that the new covenant is inaugurated, of course it is, Jesus said it was, when at the Last Supper he spoke with his disciples and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, meaning that at his death, the new covenant would be instituted. Certainly, the new covenant is instituted. It is enacted. I would say that it is not yet complete because all the promises God has made, especially the promises relevant to Israel, are not yet fulfilled. They will be, though. 
And part of that fulfillment will extend all the way to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. When he rules in an active, literal way over the entire earth. Of course, there is right now a present spiritual rule of Jesus over the earth in and through his church. If you want to say that, I don't have a problem with that. But when I read the promises of the reign of the Messiah over the earth, I, I, I don't think it ends with what we have now. I think there's more. And the institution of that standing, physical, material, literal reign of Jesus Christ over this earth, that is yet to come. And in that, there will be a role for priests. There will be, I believe, as a memorial, a uh, coming back to this idea of the priesthood. Not, I don't know how if it's possible to say it in any stronger way, but I would just, I would almost want to scream this. Not a priesthood for the sake of being a mediator between God and man and not a priesthood for the sake of offering atoning sacrifices. Never a thousand times no. Those things are completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But those were not the only functions of the priesthood. And, and I, I would point to that. Um, Gracia. I, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, but again, I would recommend take a look at my commentary at EnduringWord.com and especially there at Jeremiah chapter 33. All right, it's looking to me like I got time for one more question, perhaps. Uh, let me take a look here at the question from Jane. Jane writes, in Judges chapter 19, what was the purpose of the Levite cutting up his concubine into 12 parts and sending to all parts of Israel? Oh, Jane. Oh, Jane, what a terrible question. I don't mean you're terrible for asking it, but you're asking a question about a terrible event. The event of the uh, Levite cutting up the concubine into 12 parts and sending the parts all over Israel to show them the depths of depravity that the nation had sunk to. All right, you, you ask, what is the purpose of that? Well, the, the purpose of the Levite was to make public the terrible deed that had been done. He took a terrible deed, the rape and murder of a concubine, which was something like a legally recognized mistress. He took the terrible thing of the rape and murder of this woman, and there's a sense in which he made it even more terrible by dismembering her body and sending it to the different parts of the land. His purpose was to outrage the nation over this terrible deed. Therefore, he took this terrible deed in some ways, he made it worse, and he made it as public as he could. <laughs> he didn't have social media. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have telegraph. He didn't have telephone. Th this was how he could make it as public as possible. That was the Levite's purpose. God's purpose in telling us the story is to show us how genuinely terrible it was during the days of the judges. And make no mistake about it, that was indeed a terrible time for the nation of Israel. Uh, it was a depraved, awful time. It was a time when, as the book of Judges tells us, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it wasn't right, but it was right in their own eyes. And uh, it resulted in terrible things for the people, for the nation of Israel. So that really, you, you have there the Levite's purpose and God's purpose. God's purpose was to show us just how terrible it was. All right, everybody. Um, uh, let me end it here. We're at an hour and we usually try to end at an hour. If I didn't get to your question, I'm sorry. Uh, but I will make note of your questions and perhaps answer them in an upcoming question and answer session. We'll do catch-up sessions from time to time. I need to tell you that we will not have a YouTube Live next Thursday. 
Next Thursday's Christmas Eve, and I'm doing stuff with my family. Thank you very much. So we're not going to have a uh, live question and answer next Thursday, but the week after that, we certainly will. We will have it on the last Thursday of this year. So I hope you can join us then. Um, very pleased. God bless you. Uh, thank you for your prayers, for your support of what God is doing in and through Enduring Word. It really is marvelous to see how God is moving, especially in our work of getting my commentary on the entire Bible translated into different languages. Uh, we are working on this very hard, and God is opening up remarkable doors. It's happening because people like you are praying. Please pray for the ongoing blessing of God on this work. So, so pleased you could join me today. God bless you, and we'll see you again in two weeks for another YouTube Live. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.